On Criminal, we tell true stories about people who've done wrong, been wronged, or gotten caught somewhere in the middle. I never did anything wrong. I never had a speeding ticket. So I think I just saved all my stuff up for just one thing. From lotto scams to black market whiskey to the accidental death of a rare and beautiful fish, we bring you stories about the most curious crimes around. Listen to Criminal every week, wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hey, David, this is Steve Sims at the uh, medical examiner's office in uh, Pearl, Mississippi. We have looked at some samples that have been brought in on that case, and uh, so far I've found nothing human. I am a bone person, a uh, bone specialist, uh, and I've seen nothing yet that looks like bone. I'm back in Canada and get a message from Dr. Stephen Sims, a forensic anthropologist in Mississippi's Office of the State Medical Examiner. So far in Sims' analysis, the samples he has seen from the fire pits on Dr. Noble's Mississippi property are not consistent with known bone samples on the basis of elemental composition, meaning on the basis of what the sample was chemically made of. Thank you. End of message. But others disagree. Dr. Cassandra Hill, another forensic anthropologist and bone expert, told Lynn Funkhauser that the samples she saw contained what is definitely burnt bone that is consistent with the appearance of human bone. Different experts have come to different conclusions because the forensics on burnt remains are difficult. Fruit's message was they want to get them to another expert. The reports from these experts make it difficult to understand what samples they actually examined. It's all very frustrating for Deborah, who has seen the findings as a major breakthrough ever since they were pulled from the ground. You know, and, and I guess where I'm aggravated, they're, they're not going to get anybody to say 1,000% it's human bone. I was researching the types of tests that can be done, and I don't care what test they want to pull out of their ass, it's not going to give them 100% accuracy. It's not going to happen, not and they're if, not going to get DNA. Not if the bones were burnt at as a high a temperature and for as long as they were. Exactly. The defense, they know that that's what the defense is going to pick on. So that's why they But want, you have an eyewitness. There's, a, there's an element of risk that the prosecution needs to take in this case. Like, they've got a witness, yes. but... Do you want it to get into the courtroom and fail, or do you want it to have the best chance of success? But you know what? Even if it's all of the above, I, I don't see the winning at it. I don't. I don't have, I have zero confidence in him. D. Bates, who Deborah is referring to here, is the district attorney. It's just it's another hurry up and, and wait. There's nothing, never enough. And I'm telling you, they could send it to whomever, and it's still not going to be enough. Well, that's, and they can I'm do sure all the research they want. So anyway, back to the excavation, this is exactly why I had that argument or whatever, because Dee has told me at least 10 times that all we need is to find one piece of bone and there is no money, no whatever, we'll dig up the whole hillside. Right. Now they're not going to, they have to excavate. How can you stop? How can, I mean, you, I don't get it. I'm, I'm just like beyond myself. Deborah's edging back into the well-worn ditch of desperation she's accustomed to traveling. She spent a considerable amount of her savings on the dig. 
well, I'll keep fighting this way. I have no choice. You would do the exact same thing that I'm going to do. You're listening to Someone Knows Something from CBC Podcasts. This is Season 6, Episode 5, The Test. This is the last regular episode in the season. I'm going to go see an attorney. I hired this gentleman to start a civil case against Shane for wrongful death. Basically more to hold up his assets and let him know that we know what he did and stir things up. In one half mile, keep right to Third Street. Deborah's decided to go after Shane with a civil suit for the wrongful death of Donnie. I traveled down to Mississippi one more time to meet with her in Macomb, and we're driving together to her civil lawyer's office. I guess the aim is to get Shane into a courtroom uh, of any sort, right? Hit him where it hurts, wallet. And you would bring Kyle in as the prime witness? Yeah. Normally, civil suits come after criminal proceedings. But in this case, some feel it could be a good idea. True at Simmons. Generally speaking, we always take the position we'd rather not see a civil trial until the criminal part has been completed. And in fact, the civil trial can make use of some of the criminal trial's information, right? Like That's right. We can't make use of the civil trial right. information. But what happens is the civil trial gets the case out in public ahead of the criminal. I just want to tie up his money so we can't hire big lawyers. <laughs> well, I mean, when it came up and, and Deborah said she was going to do that, you know, ordinarily we don't like to see that happen, but this is different. I, talk to Dee and, you know, we weren't going to discourage it. We weren't going to encourage it, but we weren't going to discourage it or say, no, you shouldn't do Mm -hmm, it. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Frankly, I was hoping it may help shake something out of the trees, so to speak, you know, out of the bushes. And And it may, we don't know. See this big house here in the corner? That's... On the way to meet the civil lawyer, Deborah takes me past a semi-derelict mansion on a Macomb main street. This is where Freddie Gunther lives. Freddie is Shane's older brother, and I want to speak to him about aspects of Shane's story to police. That is a massive, that's a mansion. It's in need of repair, but it's a massive mansion. It's got like a cupola on the top or like a tower. Apparently, Shane owns the house and Freddie is helping to restore it. I'll come back here for a closer look later. This is probably the biggest, one of the biggest buildings I've ever seen a law firm in. It's like an old barn storage mall sort of thing. I meet with Deborah and one of her lawyers, Ronnie Whittington, an older southern man with white hair and glasses, in his very spacious Macomb office building. Hi, how are you? Hi, how are you doing? 
I'm David Ridgen. Nice to meet you. David? David, yeah. I'm You're from Canada. Canada. I work for CBC Canadian Broadcasting. Okay. So okay. Deborah has asked me to come and work with her and okay. see what we right. can do with this case. I hope you don't mind me being here. Now, are you recording us? I am, yeah. I don't want to do that. Okay. That would waive the attorney-client privilege. Can I ask for like a, some kind of a statement after? Sure. We, we, that's how Whittington won't allow me to stay despite Deborah's permission and my assurance that I only really want to record the beginning of their meeting. Uh, I'm not doing it. I'm just... It's not in your best interest. He's correct in that once I attend and record any conversation they might have, it no longer becomes privileged and is subject to disclosure to a defense lawyer. No, no hard feelings at all. I just, I just know. I respect his wishes and leave the office to await Deborah in her car. Whittington retained a New Orleans-based lawyer named Bill Goodwin to help him with the civil suit. I spoke to Goodwin at Noble's farm as he was catching up on the case history with Deborah. You know, and you never know what a juror will latch on to. You know, you just never know. There's a lot of circumstantial stuff that when you fuse it with facts, I mean, that's your, that's your task, right? You have to... Yeah, but well, but one thing, this is not a circumstantial case. There's direct evidence. You've got Kyle who, you know, it's direct evidence. I basically told Deborah, I'm glad she was here, but whether they found Bone or didn't find Bone, in my mind, wouldn't have affected my prosecutorial decision, you know? Now, let me ask you this then, since I have you. If the bone, or if the object, or the item found in that area turns out to be human bone, what if you were approached by the DA who says, I wanted to go criminal first? Oh, I think we would honor that. But that would be, truthfully, Mr. Whittington's call. You know, but my suspicion is that we would honor that. In reference to this case, the fact that with the political environment here in Mississippi right now, the fact that this case involves homosexuality, you know, I'm being very adamant with the district attorney that does not need to be playing into his uh, decision about prosecution or not. You know, I just want to make sure that that's not an issue. And uh, I don't believe that it is, but you never know. You know, I mean, we've got an eyewitness whose truth and veracity has been confirmed. And let me say this, it was confirmed before the specimens were found. I mean, he said there was a burn pile on top of this hill, and he could not have possibly have known that if he hadn't been here. And he has said that he participated in the crime of disposing of the body. No rational person says that unless it's true. So I'm going to be looking for any motive, improper motive, about why this case isn't being pursued. And if it turns out that that's one of them, I'll be screaming it from the housetop. We'll come back to the civil suit as it progresses. This is the uh, case file. Looks a little bit out of order. Big time. <laughs> Why is it out of order? <laughs> well, I left uh, 
lawyer's office one day and dropped it, and everything went everywhere on the street. And uh, all right, we'll have to reorganize that. So I haven't put it put everything back yet because I pretty much have everything on my phone as well. Files. In the meantime, awaiting finality in the sample analysis, the civil case, more plans for more digs by Deborah, and dogs sniffing soil, I want to explore more of the information available about the final days of Donnie's spring 1995 trip. Some in there too, but just the investigative file Deborah obtained from Maryland police provides a few possibilities. Names of people that come up around the period of Donnie's trip with Shane. So we, we've got a lot to do here in coming up with some hard evidence that supports Kyle's story. Now, there were witnesses, quite a number of people, let's say, who were interviewed back in the day, way back, by either Maryland police and our FBI. Some of these people need to be talked to again. People that are hard to reach, and even Truett can't find them. I've been looking for a few of these names that I need to come forward. Jamie Lynn Reichert and Paul Andrew Lapp were two roommates of Donnie's who lived with him around the time he disappeared. They weren't extensively interviewed by police at the time and may have information. And even others who were interviewed need more attention. Three in particular, named Brady Swindell, Jason Hogan, and a Canadian named Barry Gear, are obvious choices according to the file. One of the people that I think that you should talk to is a person that Donald met in Florida, Key West, I believe it was, back in 95. And his name is Brady Swindell. Swindell, I believe it's pronounced. Okay, and he met him down in Key West? That's correct. Okay, and that, yeah, that's right, Brady Swindell in the file is the guy who said that Donnie called him from Mississippi, right? Yes. Okay. Brady Swindell might be a good possible source of information. Donnie knew Brady, apparently, from another trip he had taken with Shane, this time to Key West, Florida, sometime earlier in the spring of 1995. According to the police file, Donnie apparently called Brady when he was in Mississippi in May. Brady could help to place Donnie in Mississippi, and he may remember some other useful details. I routed a production trip past his home in St. Louis, only to discover that Swindell had just died. What are you looking for there? Conversation with Brady. Deborah had Facebook messaged with Brady quite a bit before he passed away. A look through his conversation with Deborah shows that Brady did know Donnie at least, but when Deborah asks Brady if he remembered the conversation he had with police back in 1995 and sent him clippings of the file to jog his memory, Brady responds, That is not the conversation I had with police, and seems they made up a few things. The police file says that Donnie lived with Brady while he was visiting Key West, but Brady says Donnie never lived with him. The file also says that Brady received a call from Donnie while he was in Mississippi, but Brady says he never received any communications from Donnie after he left Key West. Brady says he never hung out with Shane, but does tell police and then Deborah many years later 
that Donnie told him that Shane beat him and was verbally abusive. But I can't verify any of it, and Maryland police are proving difficult to get a statement out of, too. I'll say police office of media communication. Oh, hi, Ron. It's David Ridgen calling from the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation at Toronto. And yeah. Maryland police have an extensive file on right. the case of Donald Izzett, which actually I have in my hands. Okay. Um, Ron Snyder at Maryland Police Media Relations later tells me flatly that they cannot help us. Brady's messages with Deborah throw aspects of the police file into a different light and make me wonder how accurate it is. Another name that comes up in the file is a man named Jason Hogan. Jason Hogan, he's in the file as someone that talked to the police and had talked to Shane. Told the police that Shane said that he left Donnie in New Orleans and there was a fight and something just didn't seem right to me. Police talk to Hogan, and it's right here. Yep. Jason Hogan, according to the file, knew Donnie and Shane and had been told by Shane that he had a fight with Donnie in Mississippi and left him in New Orleans without any money. Hogan would then be a good person to talk to since he apparently heard directly from Shane what happened and also could place Donnie in Mississippi. I called Hogan and set up a meeting at his home in Maryland. Hello, Jason. Nice to see you. Thanks for seeing me. My son Owens is in the car, so... So, I don't know if I'm up for a bunch of recording or anything. Uh, but I need to record. Right away, the meeting with Hogan seems off to me. Andy doesn't want to be recorded for a statement. So I smooth into a proposal to try to at least verify that he is the right Jason Hogan. I decide to show him the name and address police had for Jason Hogan in the 1995 police file. I've blacked out all the other information. Okay, I mean, I could show you right here if you want. I mean, I'm not, it's not that I'm withholding anything, I just don't have the missing link. So I, I've redacted exactly what you said, but you can see that your name's in it, you can see that it's your address, and this is page one. My redactions are the black. And this is Maryland Department of State Police, and this is the file number for Donnie Is It, and you are here. That's your date of birth, right? Yep. And that's your full name, Jason Eric Hogan, right? And then this is where you lived, right? I did live there. Then there's other pages that say your name again. We got this from him. We got this from him. And then same date of birth, same former address and phone number. I won't provide him with much more than this because I don't want to seed a witness with case information, even if it is what they might have said before. I'm hoping Hogan can remember on his own. So where was this taken, this police report? I suspect that they've met you and it was August and it would have been out in San Diego, I think. August of 95, I think. See, but the issue with this whole thing is I've never known a person by the name of Izzet. After you sent me the text, yeah. I read back through and his name was Donald. Donald, yeah. And then it says at the bottom, this is the thing I did not redact. It should be noted that Swindell and Hogan are going to attempt to retrieve phone numbers from previous phone bills. Do you remember anything about that? Saying that you would go through phone no. records. I've had enough and Hogan's had enough. So Jason, what's your comment about Donnie is it? You've got Jason Eric Hogan, date of birth 07-2176, the same address you lived at, but... I have absolutely no recollection of speaking with a police officer in San Diego and 
do not know anybody by this name. Mm. Donnie is it. I have never met a Donnie is it if he said his name was Donnie and have researched online and there is no name that is in common. With you that you know of. Yep. Mm. Okay, so that's all I really want to that's, say on a microphone about that's this. That, that's fine. And off mic, he doesn't add anything. Police say they interviewed this particular Jason about Donnie Izzett, but this Jason Hogan has no recollection of it. I have no explanation, and I don't detect deliberate deception on Hogan's part. Could police have accidentally inserted the wrong Jason Hogan's address? How long did it take you to drive from home to here? Uh, I don't know. Seven hours. Wow. Not bad. No, it's a heck of a lot closer than uh, Mississippi. Well, I'm going to continue down. I'm going to go to Florida and go talk to uh, Barry, Barry Gear down there. I don't think anyone's spoken to Barry Gear and since since back then. The Florida connection with Donnie continues with a fellow named Barry Gear, someone Donnie allegedly took another trip with. This time to Toronto, also in the spring of 1995. Back in 95, Deborah found out about Gear from police after Donnie disappeared and reached out to him. They briefly stayed in touch and Gear provided some information, but Deborah has always thought he might know more. And he supposedly knew Shane. I had so many conversations with him and was sending him information back in the day. And I have notes where it shows you that I've called and his numbers was changed and he just never stayed in contact with me. Mm. After finding out where he is in Florida, I go there and leave several ever more detailed messages at a number associated with Barry Gear. Hi, this message is for Barry. Barry, it's David Ridgen calling again. Uh, Hello? Yeah, hi. Someone keeps on calling our number and saying they're looking for somebody. Oh, hi. I'm looking for Barry, yes. Are you Barry? No, there's no Barry at this number. Okay, so no one named Barry Gear? No. Okay. Uh, and how long have you had this number, if you don't mind me asking? Uh, probably a couple of years. A couple of years? Okay. Do, do you know Thank anyone you. named Barry Gear? No. Okay. okay, thanks very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. So, losing hope on Barry, the third person from the police file. But then, a short time later, while I'm driving through a terrible Florida storm on US Highway 1, I get a call. Hi, it's David there, please. This is David. David, uh, what do you do, if I may ask? What do I do? Who is this speaking? I pull as far over to the side of the road as I can and fumble to take the call. Uh, I just got a message that you were looking for somebody. Yes, I'm looking for a person named Barry. Barry Gear. Do you know Barry? Okay, and what is this regarding? Uh, it's regarding an investigation I'm working on about Donnie Izzett, who disappeared in uh, 1995. I'm working with CBC and Deborah Izzett, Donnie's mother. And I have the yep. police file about the case, and Barry Gear is mentioned in it as uh, having known Donnie. Yeah, yeah, this is, this is Barry Gear. It was Barry's contact number. The guy who called before was also likely Barry himself. Donnie was a kid that I met in TF many years ago, and uh, he disappeared. I believe his boyfriend 
did something, harmed him in some way, his mother thought. In the file, there's some information that um, you had spent some time with Donnie before the uh, disappearance, like what, you spent some time with him in Correct. April in 1995. Yeah. yeah, I actually drove him from Florida to his mom's house. Oh, okay, okay, so you met Donnie in Florida? Yep, I met Donnie in U.S. Florida. He got in a fight with his boyfriend, at least what I remember for so long ago. But uh, I believe he, his boyfriend was abusive in some way, or and he was kind of stranded. So I was actually heading back up to Toronto, so I actually said, I'll drive you. Okay, so back in March of 95, you met Donnie in Key West. Okay, and did you know anything about his relationship with Shane? I knew that he had problems with him. Okay. I mean, he didn't go into details about it. Okay, okay. And then, did you ever take Donnie to Toronto with you? Yeah, he actually went um, He went up to the Toronto on the way back. Okay, and did, did Shane go with you at that, that time as well? No, no. I, I never, I met Shane very briefly. It wasn't something that, you know, that we were friends or acquaintances or anything like that. Okay, and what, what was your opinion of Shane Gunther at the time? I know he was a real fitness fanatic, totally into the gym and working out. I did recall that he did say he had a, a bad temper. Okay, and so did Donnie ever call you and tell you where he was at any time in sort of 1995 in that spring? The only time I remember hearing from him was once, and he was in Santa Barbara, in California somewhere. Okay, and he didn't he didn't call you, and he was in another state somewhere, and said, "Hi, I'm in this state, and I'm with Shane." No, no, no. Okay, okay. Did you know that Donnie had disappeared, and how did you find out about that? I found out from his mother. His mother actually contacted me. She was convinced that something happened terrible. And so, in the time that you knew Donnie, how long did you know him for? Three weeks. It was just an important period of time because it preceded his disappearance. What was going on in Donnie's life when you knew him? I mean, honestly, the only thing I knew that he was having issues with his, you know, with his partner. I mean, I, I knew that. I knew that clear. I think he really relied on him for everything. I think he really relied on him for money. He was young. He, he didn't have his shit together, I guess. But nice nice guy, but he just, you know, he just was in his own, I mean, what I can remember, it's so long ago. Barry drove Donnie on a trip to Toronto that seemed to last only two or three days. Then he says he dropped Donnie off at Deborah's place. Yeah, but that, I dropped him off, and well, I, you know, I literally spoke to him once after that in Santa Barbara, you know, are you still with your mom? He said, no, I... I'm in California. And I was like, oh, I'm, well, that was a big change. From Barry, the recurring theme of Donnie suggesting Shane was abusive in some way, and now a suggestion that Donnie was reliant on Shane. So I talked to Barry last night, and uh, it was a really bad line. I didn't hear much in what he said that was different from what I read in the file. He cannot confirm that Donnie was ever in Mississippi, according to him, in his memory now. Do you remember meeting Barry at that time? 
No, I never met him, never. With Barry's information, I look back at Shane's statement to police. There, Shane mentions that he and Donnie went through something like a separation when they were in Florida in April. So, something happened between them in April. Donnie goes on the trip with Barry, then Donnie reunites with Shane, and they end up back in California to start their trip for the Mississippi Puppies in May 1995. When the officer asks Shane if he and Donald ever had a physical altercation, Shane says, no, only a play fight in D.C., and that he never beat Donnie up. Shane says that neither one of them is physical. You saw Donnie in April, right? After Toronto, you saw Donnie, right? Oh, I saw Donnie in May, too. And Shane may have even been at my house one time, um, right before Donnie left for what I call spring break, for lack of, I don't know what, what to call it. He came to my house, and um, he had some friends with him. The friends never came in the house, but he had some people out at the pool. We had a big in-ground pool. I can't remember any faces, but I know there was a couple guys out there, and it could have very well been Shane. Who knows? And I remember giving Donnie some money. I, I, I want to say it was like two $20 bills, and we hugged and all that stuff. And then that was, that was the last time I saw him. But that was in May. Something else I noticed in the file. Shane says he dropped Donnie off in New Orleans on May 26th. And he also says that Kyle came to Mississippi five days later, so May 31st. However, one of Shane's gas receipts that police found was dated June 1st and places Shane in El Paso, Texas, which is 17 hours away, which means he had to leave New Orleans or Macomb on May 31st. And so by this timing, would likely have not even seen Kyle. If you're looking for another surprising investigation into the criminal justice system, check out Bear Brook from New Hampshire Public Radio, hosted by me, Jason Moon. Bear Brook is back with an update on our second season. Jason Carroll is serving life in prison for a murder he says he did not commit. Now, the biggest development in the case in 35 years could lead us one step closer to the truth. Listen to the complete second season of Bearbrook, now available wherever you get your podcasts. Seems like that anybody that we could have used has, you know, because the case is so old, they have died, and it's just, we're running out of options. If Shane did ever say something to someone else about his time with Donnie Izzett Jr., that is of utmost importance. If anybody listening remembers any conversations they might have had with George Shane Gunther that could clear up any aspect of this case, please get in touch. I've talked to people close to Kyle to see what they remember him telling them, but they say Kyle only told them anything once Deborah found him. But there is one person he remembers telling who's different. Someone he says he told 20 years ago. So all this time, were you still thinking that helping to burn Donnie's body with Shane was a dream? That was at the time when I was coming to recovery, thinking about like, okay, what am I hiding right now? And that's where I told Craig, you know, my ex, that this had happened. And he said, well, maybe it didn't happen. I'm sitting with Kyle at the Los Angeles financial office he works at. Beside him on the computer screen, what looks like a mortgage spreadsheet he's been working on. When did you tell Craig? It was maybe 2000. 
And did he do anything or say anything to you to try to get you to? No, he just he was worried about me. Like he just said, "Hey, don't say anything," because he didn't want me to get in trouble or anything. He said, "Just don't say anything. If, if no one's contacted you now, then you know." Hello. Hi there. I'm looking for Craig Anderson. Yes. My name's David Ridge, and I work for the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. If Craig remembers Kyle telling him the story of what happened in Mississippi from around the year 2000, and the story is the same, it goes towards strengthening Kyle's credibility. I work on this podcast where I'm looking at the disappearance of Donnie Izzett, and I'm working with Deborah, Donnie's mother, and I'm interested to interview you about your experience in dealing with uh, your former partner, Kyle and uh, what, what you remember from what Kyle might have told you around the period that Donnie disappeared. I, 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 I never met Donnie. He was always Shane's boyfriend. I, I didn't know his name, actually. Shane was a really crazy fuck. I didn't, um, I didn't socialize with him much. He was strange. He really was. And Kyle moved in across the street from me in 95 and uh, started, started dating. I don't, don't remember him telling me a story or anything like that. But it's something like Shane had shot someone. But also, remember, I'm thinking he's just paranoid and he's telling stories because he's high again. Craig remembers Kyle telling him that Shane shot someone. But Craig says Kyle was using ketamine at the time and often in a drug-induced daze, so it was easy for him to ignore the details he was hearing about what happened in Mississippi. In later conversations Craig had with Truett Simmons, he confirms again that Kyle told him details about his trip to Mississippi, identical details we heard him tell us 20 years later. Have you spoken to Freddie about what he knows? Um. Deborah and I are back in Mississippi, and I'm asking her again about Shane Gunther's brother, Freddie. I was here last year, and I went to Freddie's house taking pictures and this guy comes out on the porch and I just started playing it off. Oh my gosh, I love this old house. I'm into history. And so he's talking to me that his brother bought the house and he said, would you like to see it? And I said, yes. So we went in and when that door shut, I was like, what the heck did I just do? But we went through every room in the house. He's telling me all about his brother. I'm thinking, yeah, I know about him. Yeah, so he, but he didn't know it was me until later. Deborah did all this on her own, not recommended by police, or me for that matter, for safety's sake, but also inspiring to me nonetheless for the gathering of information's sake. Freddie Gunther could be a key to understanding Shane's whereabouts around the time of Donnie's disappearance. Just driving through the rain down the main streets here in Macomb towards Fred Gunther's place. Shane Gunther, in his statement to police, said that around the time Donnie disappeared, May 24th, May 25th, 1995, that Shane stayed with his brother at his house near New Orleans after leaving a bar and leaving Donnie there with another man. So I want to check with Fred if that alibi is true. Did Shane stay with Fred on that night? Freddie used to live near New Orleans, and Shane says in his statement that he stayed with him. If he didn't, it might cast some doubt on this crucial part of his story. 
I pull up near the dilapidated mansion and it doesn't take long for Freddy to emerge with his beige retriever type dog. Freddy's got short cropped silver hair with a taupe t-shirt, gray pants, and is about five foot nine. Hey Fred. How are you? Are you Fred? I'm Dave Ridge and I work for uh, Canadian Broadcasting. I'm working on the case of Donnie Izzet. Yeah. And your brother Shane was named in a civil suit recently as being involved in that case. And he's used you in an alibi that he gave to police. You're recording all this? Yes, this is for a podcast that I work on. Well, I'm trying to, you know, I've been every direction, you know, with this, that, and the other. And it seems like everything that's going on right now, you know, I'm trying to just look back and see the whole picture and trying to figure out what's going on with it all. So it's a a sticky situation to begin with. Has Shane spoken to you about it? I've already talked to uh, uh, Izzy's mother. He had called me several times. He had talked a number of times. Did Shane ever talk to you about this case? Did he ever talk to you about Donnie, is it? Yes, he had mentioned a few things, and um, I'd rather just sort of leave it at that because, you know, you got his story, his side of things, and then you got Izzy, and then, you know, somebody that that, uh, I'd never even known the individual, and then, you know, 25 years later, all of a sudden, you know, you find out about this. Shane said that he stayed with you at the house where you used to live near New Orleans around the 24th or 25th, 1995. Do you remember him staying with you that night? Uh, well, I already talked to the investigators about all that. And what did you so tell them? I, I, I'd rather just talk to somebody else other than, you know, a microphone. I could be, you know, I don't want to say anything incriminating. I just, you know, he's got himself a lawyer. Izzy's working on her side and everything that's going on in Fernwood. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's let me just, ask you this then: just you, a matter of time. Do you, you know? think your brother had anything to do with Donnie Izzy's death? Well, the way it looks, it looks like you know they're 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 getting uh, they're looking. They're over in Fernwood looking, and they've been looking for two years. So it seems like you know. Uh, it's, all that stuff takes a long time to finally, it takes time, you know, it's just, it's just, you know, it's taking time for the whole investigation. Everybody brings everything to the table. Throughout our chat, Freddie is retreating ever so slowly toward the front door. Each of my questions will stop him for a bit, then he'll continue his fallback, bringing the dog on the leash with him. Do you think he killed Donnie, though? I would rather just stay in neutral territory with that. Let me just tell you this. My mother was interviewed, my grandmother, 25 years ago, then my sister. I didn't know a thing about it. Nobody ever told me a thing about this until two years ago when I got a card. A private investigator wanted to talk to me when I moved in here. So you were never interviewed by police back so, then? Were you so, ever interviewed by police back then, 25 years ago? No, they never talked to me. And I told them zero plus zero is zero. That's the extent of what I knew about the whole situation. Were you in Macomb at the time? I don't know where I was. I don't know. Did you know Don? I think I was in, no. Okay. I never met, never met him. 
Never saw him. Did Shane ever tell you he was here with him? Well, at one time with my sister's situation, but that that's, you know, I don't want to get into something that, you know, I'd rather just just see what happens and, and let, let Izzy's mother, you know, with what just came out in the paper, I was in a state of shock. So, uh, I understand. what more do you say? I got one I more hope question. They come down to the bottom of this. I hope, I hope they I do, I mean, too. I'm tired of just, you know, I'm going through an issue with the estate of my dad that passed away. And, and you know, you just like to see a finalization of things because sometimes things take a whole lot longer than, you know. So, you know, I'm just I'm dealing with a lot right now. Did your brother call you at the time and ask yeah. you to help him with anything? or? See, he was, I think he was, uh, in California, so I don't know, you know, maybe you go talk to my sister. Right. <laughs> See what she says. This house is uh, kind of old, nice place. This Shane owns this house, right? Yeah, he does, yeah. See, yeah. I moved in here. I told him, I said, look, I can't make a decision on it. You're gonna have to come take a look. So he came out and took a look, and he got it from the people over here in a week's time, and then he flew back to Seattle. And I've been working on it for two years. I don't know if I want to keep it or... It's a big job. You know, I mean, it's a, it's a real neat old house. Yeah. And uh, so, so do take you care of yourself. Do you I, stay in touch with Shane? Do you, are you in touch with yeah, him? Yeah, I keep in touch with him. I mean, I keep in touch with my sister, too. You know, I, I was going to call her because she keeps in touch with Izzy. And she just called me to the point where, look, I just need to step back. I'm just getting all this information and, and, you know, you don't know what's true, what's not true, and everything in between. Yeah. Here and several times in the conversation, Freddie's called Donnie by the name Izzy, a term of familiarity. Kyle has told Deborah and Truett that Shane named one of his puppies Izzy after Donnie. The other dog's name was allegedly Shit. It makes me wonder if Freddie has spoken to Shane about Donnie more extensively than he's letting on. So I'd rather just step back and look and see for myself and say, okay, and let the investigation continue and, and uh... Freddie's hand is on the front doorknob now. I don't think I can keep him talking much longer. Have you been in touch with your brothers since they discovered this object or these things they think might be human remains out on the farm? I, I've just, he's got himself a lawyer. I don't know, but I just know that he keeps up with prevalent things going on in Macomb. Okay. Thanks. Thank you very much. Okay. I asked Truett what Freddie said to him. Did Shane stay with Freddie on the night he said he did? But Truett is keeping that card close and won't tell me. Well, I, I, at this point, I don't want to. I, I don't want to talk about that. You know, Freddie and I did talk about that. Okay. But uh, some of the information he gave me about that, I'm trying to keep close to me right now, without putting it out there, David. I, I, I hate to be that way, but that's just. Uh, that's fine. Perhaps Freddie does hold some answers for this case. And like his brother Shane, it would be great if he could help clear up some of the lingering questions. I get a text from Deborah saying that she may not be able to speak to me as openly as she has before, as part of a potential settlement in the civil suit against Shane. 
Are you able to tell me anything about what you're considering with the civil suit? Um, like basically, do you want to settle? Is that what you're considering, or just on the civil end, of yeah. course? Like, if I do a settlement, then there would be a gag order; it cannot be discussed. Was there any suggestion of what they would ask for in return of giving you a, a settlement? Just that the lawsuit is closed, can't be reopened, and there's a gag order. Yeah. But I mean, I've went over it and over it and sent it. And I've sent it in text messages everything that in emails that I will not no way shape or form give up anything criminally I don't care how much money is involved nor give up you know any type of you know rights to tell my story tell Donnie's story whatever it is I feel like doing at some point in, after the fact After a process of about 10 months, Deborah's wrongful death suit against Shane Gunther regarding Donnie's disappearance ended with a settlement. Now, a settlement is not an admission of anything. People settle out of court for many reasons. But without having to give a statement, Shane settled with Deborah, paying her an undisclosed monetary sum. Her lawyers, Macomb-based Ronnie Whittington and New Orleans-based Bill Goodwin, took 40% of this sum, plus expenses. Whether District Attorney D. Bates will follow this with a grand jury proceeding with an eye on a criminal trial continues to be a question. And I still don't know for certain, based on the differing opinions of the forensic doctors, exactly what the samples are that were pulled from the ground. But there may be another way to check. During the dig, I took soil samples from the area of the fire pit and where the potential bone fragments were found. I then sent these samples to two different cadaver dog handlers. Kim Cooper, a Canadian cadaver dog expert based in the Ottawa area, and Mary Cable, who leads a team in Reno, Nevada. Those results are in, and they may help D.A. Bates with his decision. I will say we got indications at different points on different jars as well, but the preponderance of, of weight was that just about every dog we put on to that particular jar really liked that one. Listeners will remember Ottawa-based cadaver dog specialist Kim Cooper from Season 1. There, her team helped invaluably in the case of missing Adrian McNaughton. And since then, her teams and handlers have helped solve other cases by finding human remains. Kim recently ran four trained cadaver dogs past the soil samples that were taken from the noble's property, resulting in full indications on one jar in particular and heightened interest in the others. It was that the preponderance of interest was on this particular sample, but we got indications on some of the other samples haphazardly from different dogs too. Two of the dogs, Recky and Knox, are certified by police to recognize and indicate on human remains, barking and making specific actions in relation to their handler. Grief, one of Kim's more experienced dogs, did not go through police certification this year due to injury, and her most experienced dog, Breeze, did not go to certification because of her age, but both can still do the job. Here's Breeze indicating on the sample from Noble's property. 
she came in, hit the first jar, and, and instantly vocalized, uh, whining and crying. The preponderance of the dog's interest, Kim says, was on the jar of soil taken from the fire pit, or feature, where the fragments were discovered by Lynn Funkhauser's team. This pit is close to the area Owen was pointing to when he was helping with the old photo in the trees. I went back in and I shuffled the jars. Oh, okay. So at, at that point, I was the only one who knew where the jar that had got the most attention. I was the only one who knew where it was. Nobody okay. else knew. Okay. And on this run, three of four dogs indicated on, on one particular jar. It was the jar that got the, the majority interest on the first run. And Grief, her injured dog, got his chance later on. Yeah, so when I get home, of course, my curiosity was just eating at me at this point, And I'm driving home going, I got another cadaver dog at home. So this time I set it out on my front lawn and, um, and just popped Grief out. Grief has not worked in two years. He, he's had uh, medical issues and he's no longer physically able to do the work. I popped him out and he ran out to the jars and he promptly, very promptly, indicated on the same jar as the one that we had had all the interest in. While Kim's dogs were interested in the soil from the fire pit feature where the fragments were found, they also showed heightened interest in some of the other dig areas too. And then, after the COVID-19 restrictions ease, I send the jars to Mary Cable in Reno for a double check. All of the Nevada dogs are trained and certified by state police, and the results that come back are stunning. So what I can tell you, very interesting, is all the dogs agreed on PU feature one and definitely primary burn. The names of the samples that Mary is reading come from what I was told to write on the labels by Lynn Funkhauser to indicate exactly which area they're taken from. Definitely PU feature two. What Mary is saying is that her dogs all performed final trained responses on the same sample that was taken from the fire pit where the fragments were found, the same area where I sampled the soil that elicited final responses from Kim Cooper's team. The dogs agree. So would you say then that there's likely human remains in the area there? I can just tell you that three single-purpose HRD dogs went to final response at TU Feature 1. Before I used the sampler, I cleaned it thoroughly with 99% alcohol, so anything in the jars was only from Dr. Noble's property. I did not clean it between the various sample areas, so there is a chance that soil from one fire pit feature could have transferred from one jar to another, but the overwhelming response points toward the same place where the fragments were found. Deborah, the second set of dogs reacted to the soil samples. No freaking way. The Nevada dogs, the Canadian dogs reacted to the soil samples. Full oh, responses. These are dogs trained in human remains detection. Ooh. You there? Yeah. I'm trying to catch my breath. We call Truett and tell him the news, 
and he's very interested in getting back to the nobles for more digging. We'll keep you updated, but for now, I trust the dogs. In my opinion, Deborah's and Truett's, it's worth another look for more samples on the noble's property. It appears that there are human remains there. I am so freaking ecstatically happy I can't stand it. I will pay whatever to get those dogs there when and if they can. And I truly 100% believe that Donnie was burnt there and he is there. And so for me to believe these dogs, absolutely. Donnie's disappearance destroyed Deborah's life, and his case thus far has no semblance of a satisfying ending, despite the progress she has made. Kyle's revelations confirmed her worst beliefs and provide a foothold for prosecutors, but the current district attorney has yet to call a grand jury, and the prime suspect since the fall of 1995 hasn't had to speak on the record about his version of what might have happened. With all we have heard and found, I think Donnie was at the noble's farm in his final moments, but what definitively happened to him there remains a question. What was Shane's role, if any? Deborah doesn't trust anyone. Police in the beginning of the process in Maryland let her down, but Deborah continues, and she tells me every week how she is still focused on Donnie and pushing wherever and whoever she can to find answers. This quest defines her life. I'll update you on anything significant that happens in Donnie's case. There's a lot of directions it can go, and with Deborah involved, it might go quickly. I'm, I'm so curious what life is gonna be like when we get closure. I just can't, I keep saying God didn't bring me this far. And there can't be this many people on our team and it not happen. I can't accept that. Closure is acceptance though. I can't, what I mean, by, it's never gonna be closure in that sense. I mean, when I, what I mean that is a piece of Donnie to yeah. take home. Yeah, yeah. I, I wish I could remember how Dr. Nobles' wife said it to me about this property and that the unfortunate thing that happened to my son here on this property, but what a peaceful and beautiful place to be. Um, it is. So that, that, it gave me some comfort, and I feel when I'm here, I feel at peace. I want to be alone. I mean, it's, it's emotional, but yet it's, it's the only place I have where, you know what I mean? It's not mm -hmm. like I could take him home and I have my place. It's here. You've been listening to episode 5, The Test. This is the last regular episode for season 6, Donald Is It. Visit cbc.ca slash sks to learn more about the Donnie Is It case or to listen to past seasons of the show. To see images from the investigation, 
Find us on Facebook at Someone Knows Something or on Instagram at CBC Podcasts. If you wish to submit an anonymous tip about the Is It case, email sks at cbc.ca. And if you're looking for another show to listen to, subscribe to Uncover, another award-winning investigative series from CBC Podcasts. Each season explores a different true crime and justice story. Someone Knows Something is hosted, written, and produced by me, David Ridgen. The series is produced by Eunice Kim, Chris Oak, and Cecil Fernandez, with help from Mikhail Arana and Emily Cannell. Transcriptions by Luke Williams Perron, Christian Jebson, Kelsey Cueva, Sarah Melton, Rasha Shahata, and Varad Mehta. Evan Agard is our video producer. Ben Shannon designed our artwork. Special thanks to Fabiola Carletti, Judy Zigu, Amanda Cox, and Phil Lung. Tanya Springer is our senior producer, and the executive producer of CBC Podcasts is Araf Nurani. Our senior director is Leslie Merklinger, and special thanks to the researchers at the CBC Reference Library. Our theme song is I Once Was a Bird by Justin Bird.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.